Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can read over 4,000 of my reviews, all written and ready to read there at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today we're going to continue on with the final of the Superman films. Yes, finally. After the first three Superman films and Supergirl, we're going to get to the end of this for the 1980s. It is Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. It came out in 1987. The director is Sidney J. Fury, and the cast brings back Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Margot Kidder, Jackie Cooper, Mark McClure, along with newcomers to the series, Mariel Hemingway, John Cryer, Sam Wanamaker, and Mark Pillow. The screenplay is by Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, and it's a PG-rated film because of violence. It runs an hour and 30 minutes. Now, as far as Superman 4 goes, from people who've seen it, it has a reputation for being the worst of the series, a bad movie, one of the worst films of the 1980s, supposedly. But it really shouldn't have been that bad. You have Christopher Reeve here. He portrayed Superman and all of those other films. He was done with the series after Superman 3, but he returned here, despite the fact that they went into this film without having a script idea. Now, Reeve had been reticent to return, but he couldn't turn down the offer of this blank canvas from which he could do the Superman film that he thought would return the franchise back to the fans and the respect for the character that he felt was mostly ignored in Superman 3. And he would do so with one of the most noble of pursuits for the character of Superman, which is to rid the Earth of nuclear weapons once and for all. Now, Reeves' return would also offer him the stipulation that he could do some second unit director chores and even take the director's chair for a future Superman film if the fourth installment were lucrative enough. On their end, the studio agreed to produce another film that Christopher Reeve had his eye on, one called Street Smart, to give him a meaty, dramatic role to try to stave off typecasting. It was a critical success, commercially did not do so well. Alas, as lofty as Christopher Reeve's goals were, he would soon find that budgetary issues would kill his dream in the end anyway. First, the production of Superman 4 moved from the Salkins to Golden Globus, Canon Films, for a fee of $5 million. That's what they sold the rights to the Superman series for. Golden Globus, which was in dire straits financially at the time due to trying to tackle too many other film projects, and they couldn't afford to spend money on a big budget release that wasn't guaranteed a profit, which they thought they could turn if their installment made even half of what Superman 3 did. Nevertheless, they were feeling more than a pinch, and the budget for Superman 4 was gutted, with less than $20 million to spend overall, and despite the fact that Warner Brothers was bankrolling much more than that, Golden Globus ended up funneling that money into other projects. Now, obviously, when you cut this much from a film... It cuts into the most crucial aspect of Superman 4, which are the special effects, which now seem very low-tech, even for the times. And then once the two-hour and ten-minute film was in the can, test audiences were just not feeling it. So Canada did what many studios do when a potential turkey's on their hands. They reduced a film to 90 minutes just so they can get extra showings every day for the first week of release and hopefully recoup some of its money. They also thought that they would cut even more corners should the film prove successful because they wanted to use some of the excised footage in a follow-up entry, although the inability to push the funds for the remainder as well as Reeves' complete disinterest in returning for another round with them after his experience made it a moot proposition anyway. You know, wishful thinking notwithstanding, the result of paring down the shooting budget and then gutting the finished product ends up with a film that looks cheesy, 
often makes little sense and inevitably killed this iteration of the franchise. And to add insult to injury, Christopher Reeve and the producers were slapped with a lawsuit that claimed that they had stolen their idea from another party. They ultimately prevailed in the suit, but it came at a great legal cost, which they really didn't have the funds for. And it's a shame, too, because Superman 4, for all of its foibles and for all of its reputation, is an extremely likable movie, even if it isn't up to the standards laid out in the first Superman. Christopher Reeve here is excellent. You got Gene Hackman, he's back as Lex Luthor, right where he should be. And for the first time in a while, Margot Kidder looks like she's actually enjoying playing Lois Lane again, unlike what happened in Superman 3, where she only reluctantly appeared. The awful humor that you found in the last couple of entries is kept to the right proportions. They're mostly supplied by John Cryer, who played Ducky in the Pretty in Pink series as Lex Luthor's nephew. Cryer is excruciating in this role and represents the worst part of this film to me. But it's still a likable movie. This time there's a heartfelt message behind the intent for the film. And it was the right movie to get Superman back on his feet. It just was the wrong time and the wrong studio. So in this one, as far as the plot goes, Superman confronts a moral dilemma. He's sworn not to meddle in the affairs of Earth, but only he has the power to stop the problems associated with the vast nuclear buildup that's occurring in a gut-wrenching decision Superman decides to rid the planet of all nuclear weapons. He gathers them all up and starts launching them into the sun. Meanwhile, his arch nemesis, Lex Luthor, he senses an opportunity to make some money by concocting a way to stop Superman because living in fear generates a lot of revenue for those who can exploit it. And so he uses Superman's DNA and then he sets about creating his own superpowered villain from it and one who's equally as powerful, a superhero he comes to dub as Nuclear Man. There's more to the story than that, but that's the basic setup. The original intent of the screenwriters of Superman 4 was that Christopher Reeve would play the bad guy role as well as playing Superman. The cost of the effects that were necessary, though, to render two Christopher Reeves on the screen, in addition to the fact that something similar had already been done in Superman 3, that made canon not consider the idea as worthwhile in the end. Also, there were two Nuclear Man characters that had been put into the film in the two-hour and ten-minute version, with the first being this prototype meant to resemble longtime Superman foe from the comics Bizarro. He ended up getting taken down by Superman early in the story, and he ended up being excised from the film altogether. Now, the one that appears in the film after the first one was left on the cutting room floor is the second Nuclear Man that Luther creates, born from the nuclear energy of the sun, and he's there to take down the Man of Steel. Now, Cannon unsuccessfully tried to get Richard Donner and his uncredited screenwriter of choice, Tom Mankiewicz, to return to the series for Superman 4. Now, Donner and Mankiewicz actually entertained coming back for a while before they ultimately decided that they had already exhausted all of their good ideas for making the first two films. So Cannon ended up looking elsewhere, they ended up turning to director Wes Craven, but Craven reportedly didn't see eye to eye with Christopher Reeve, kind of left him out of it. Ultimately, they settled on a veteran filmmaker named Sidney J. Fury, who had been in negotiations already with Golden Globus on another project that he had wanted to make. And Fury had once been considered an upper tier director in his day. He helmed such features as The Ipcrest Files and Lady Sings the Blues. And though he hadn't really made something critically praised in some time, he was coming off of one of his most successful movies financially in 1986's Iron Eagle. That one was economical in execution, and that made Fury the most attractive to a studio that was barely scraping by. Now, in addition to bringing back most of the core original cast, John Williams' original score is back here. There is even a few new compositions of his, although the score in this film is actually not conducted by John Williams himself because he had prior commitments. It was done by one of his trusted friends, another veteran composer named Alexander Courage. 
Now, all things considered, it is actually a miracle that the film was able to get made in the end, and I respect the fact that a low-budget film like this would actually be able to supply a few good moments. You have the destruction of the Great Wall of China, you have the abduction of the Statue of Liberty, and still it's easy to see that this was but a fraction of the previous efforts budgets, with many of the shots of Superman flying obviously done with blue screens or false backgrounds. It really does not qualify as eye candy, at least as compared to what we've seen in the previous three films. Now, as with the other films in the series, there are logical questions that do abound. At the beginning of Superman 4, Superman is visiting his old farm in Smallville, where he checks in on the vehicle that shuttled him to Earth as a baby, and the voice of his mother, Lara, tells him that the green crystal from Krypton within it will give him the remaining power of Krypton, but it can only be used once. However, if you go by the other films, in the original Superman, we only see one green shard being placed in Kal-El's ship, and that was used to create the Fortress of Solitude. In Superman 2, though, we see the green shard. It's found within the fortress. It's used again in order to restore Superman's powers. And yet, here is another example in Superman 4. So either you can use them more than once, or there were multiple such shards sent along with Superman than what we were originally shown in the first film. Questions abound, as I said. Lex Luthor, along with his perpetually annoying nephew Lenny, they end up breaking into a museum display, housing a strand of Superman's hair that supports a 1,000-pound weight. Luthor easily clips that hair with a pair of shears, and it makes you wonder, shouldn't such a hair from Superman himself be indestructible, or at least very hard to, to snip in half. And, and even if you were to get the hair, shouldn't the DNA within that hair make Nuclear Man resemble Superman in more than powers? I mean, they wanted to go with Christopher Reeve, that would have made a lot more sense. I mean, Mark Pillow does not look like Christopher Reeve, really, in the slightest. And speaking of hair, Lex Luthor was established as being completely bald in the first two films. He only was shown to have hair because he was wearing a wig that he would wear most of the time. And yet, Gene Hackman's mane is clearly not a wig in this film. And if it were, it's a wig no one would ever choose because he's balding with it. And he's never really shown as being bald at all at any point throughout Superman 4. In addition to this, Superman shows a couple of powers that we had not yet seen in the prior films. One involves the ability to move bricks back into place at the Great Wall of China. He uses beams from his eyes that appear to be something similar to his heat vision to put all those really big and heavy bricks back into place exactly how they were before. Nuclear Man, whose appearance in Demeter will have many comparing him to a professional wrestler. Mark Pillow, who plays Nuclear Man, he was awkwardly lip-synced with Gene Hackman's voice at the time when he was actually talking. It wasn't like they dubbed in Gene Hackman's voice. He actually was just mouthing the words that Gene Hackman was actually saying for the Nuclear Man character. Now, Nuclear Man also seems to have this telekinetic ability to levitate people and objects. That's something that Superman also uses in this film to bring those objects back down to Earth. That's a new power that we haven't seen. Superman's Kiss of Amnesia, which was used at the end of Superman 2 to make Lois unaware that Clark and Superman are the same, or of their relationship, is employed here yet again, despite the fact that some of the fans really detested the use of it as a narrative cheat the first time around. Now, in terms of its themes, Superman 4 is perhaps the biggest victim of its times. You know, this was made in the Reagan era, where people were flocking to join big business. They were sold on the notion that wealth trickles down from the top. And here we have scenes such as the one where Clark Kent refuses to sell his family farm in Smallville unless it's to another farmer, rather than to someone who wants to use the land to build a strip mall. That may have been deemed a little old-fashioned in its idealism for the Reagan era. The corporatizing of the news, that's another issue that's taken on here. You have the tabloid mogul immediately putting his imprint on the publication called The Daily Planet. 
He wants to go for what's sensational rather than what's newsworthy, and that causes a rift between journalism as a public good versus the news media as a for-profit business that was taken on here. And in the waning days of the Cold War, with the Soviet Union on the brink of collapse, the nuclear scare that had been so pervasive just a few short years before they seemed more of a remote possibility in 1987. And that lessened the stakes involved in Superman's noble pursuits in order to get rid of all of the nukes and make the world a safer place, presumably. That Lex Luthor leads a conglomeration of businessmen who are dedicated to the profits that can be derived from war is but another of the heady issues that this film touches upon, but it doesn't really grapple with it enough to make a lasting impact overall. And one could go even further with ascribing themes from the environmentalist perspective. You have Superman, whose powers come from being near the yellow sun, i.e. solar power. He's taking on a man whose powers come from nuclear energy, although this angle gets a little bit murky when it's revealed that nuclear man does need direct sunlight to stay powered. So a lot of themes here, I don't think they really come together in a satisfying way, as expected by most people who are involved in the making of the film, including Christopher Reeve, who knew that the film would turn out not to be any good once it was slashed to bits by Canon Films. It ended up tanking at the box office predictably. It made just a little over $15 million that made it the lowest earner by far in the series, unless you count Supergirl the year before, which made slightly less than that. As Canon decided to pass on making a follow-up to Superman 4, the rights to the franchise actually reverted back to the Salkins, who had ideas of making another entry that would ignore the events of Superman 4, in addition to their own Superman 3, except, unfortunately, the delays that were caused in trying to get that film off the ground resulted in the Salkins losing the rights back to DC Comics when they did not produce another entry within the five-year period stipulated in the contract. So alas, we'll never know if Superman 4 ever had a chance to revive the franchise. It was dead before it ever left the gate. Perhaps one day we'll be able to view the extra 40 minutes which were sliced out of the film. I hope so. Although, given the state of the production that we can see on the screen, and the rather weak script anyway, a return to glory from those 40 minutes that were excised it seems a little too much to ask for. But still, it really should not have been this bad. So as much as I admire what they were trying to do with the film, and I like certain aspects of the film, including the casting here and, and some of the story elements, I just feel like the production problems ended up crippling this film to the point where it just was never able to soar to the heights that Superman once did in the previous film. So I'm going to give Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means I do think it's lacking something vital that would make it a recommendable film to most people. And that which it is lacking, of course, is the money to make the vision come to life and the script. I guess the movie probably wouldn't have been good anyway with a script like this, but it certainly should have been a lot better than what it ended up being. That ends the Superman films for now. Boy, it felt very exhausting as we were getting through it. It almost felt like a marathon, to be honest with you, but I'm happy to have revisited them. But I'm also happy that they're kind of done for now so I can move on to other things. So next week, we're going to move on to another film from the 1980s that concerned itself with nuclear weapons. And that really is a lot of films from the 1980s that dealt with nuclear weapons, but one specifically that is a classic for its era. It is called War Games from 1983, starring Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, and a host of other character actors that are excellent. War Games from 1983, if you want to keep up with the movies before I get to the reviews, check that out before next week and you'll get to listen to my review with all of the knowledge in mind. Before I go, I want to remind you that I do a film review podcast covering new films. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. You can do a search for it wherever you're listening to this. Just remember that Quipster is spelled with a W instead of a U. 
And until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.